0: Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Hi everyone, welcome back to Awareness to Action. Today I'm joined by Keith Cartwright. Keith is a behavioral health wellness consultant for the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services. In this role, he leads the statewide initiative to grow awareness in communities about the developmental impacts of adverse childhood experiences. Keith also works part-time as the alcohol and drug education coordinator at Randolph-Macon College. Keith and I covered a lot in our conversation from adverse childhood experiences to the difference between prevention and promotion. And perhaps most importantly, we talked about how to build better relationships, something that feels more relevant now than ever before. I hope you'll enjoy listening to this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. We recorded amidst the pandemic, so Keith is joining me via Zoom. Keith, welcome to Awareness to Action. I'm so happy to have you here on the podcast.
1: It is good to be here. Thank Um, you.
0: Let's just start with you telling our listeners about the roles you're in now and the path that brought you here.
1: Oh, boy. So my full-time role um, professionally is I work for the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, long title, Um, and what I do is I help manage federal substance abuse prevention funds that go out to the 40 community service boards across the state, one of them being Northwestern. And so I I just help make sure we've got good substance abuse prevention plans in place that we're using our money in a good way. Then I also work part time at Randolph-Macon College. I'm the alcohol and drug education coordinator there. Also a lot in the prevention world and prior to that i spent 13 years working with at-risk kids in a residential wilderness program and at the time i didn't really know that it was all preparing me for this life i'm kind of in now but but it has and you know our our conversation will probably speak to that as we work through it
0: it's pretty amazing how all of the pieces fit together eventually to Bring you exactly where you're supposed to be.
1: Absolutely. I'm a big believer in that.
0: So Keith, ACEs is a, I don't even know what to, a science, a concept. What would you call it? What would you call ACEs?
1: I would call, definitely it starts with a science, Mm -hmm. but I think for me, it has uh, sort of migrated from a science into a philosophy. It certainly Mm -hmm. has a spiritual component. To it for me um
0: yeah
1: and again maybe some of that will make sense as we you know we we dive into it but aces basically says that scientifically numbers wise that a lot of us have experienced hard things in our life and really the earlier we've experienced those the more impact it potentially has on us. And sort of from a philosophical and spiritual standpoint, I I think knowing that challenges us in our daily interactions to at least consider, if not start with the idea that, you know, I'm talking with Casey right now, and there's a really good chance that Casey has had something hard in her life happen that shaped this person that I'm talking with today. Um, And I just think that's a great thing to kind of understand about each other, especially in a world where we spend a lot of time trying to put on these masks and costumes that say we have it all together. When we start at a place where we can recognize that we don't have it all together, there's some freedom I think that comes with that. So I don't think that part's scientific, but I there's a science that backs it up.
0: Yeah. I like a science and a philosophy feels right to me. Right. Um so this science philosophy is really important to you and in a minute i'm going to ask you to really define aces for our listeners but for now i'd love for you to tell me how aces were brought to your attention and and why they mean so much to you now
1: yeah so i guess four years ago i've been doing this substance abuse prevention work for a long time especially if you factor in the you know the early years of counseling it's all kind of tied together and and most of that has been targeting you know preventing folks from using abusing substances in a harmful way and 4 years ago i was sitting in this place of you know this professional life where as a country we were in the middle of a suicide epidemic and a drug overdose epidemic both of them the worst epidemics we've ever had in our lifetimes and so if you're a prevention guy, that's kind of your scorecard. And the scorecard is, man, we're we're not doing something right here. Everything we're trying to prevent, people are doing more of and suffering more from it than they ever have. And as about that same time, I was at a big prevention conference we go to every year up in Washington. And I'd been to it several years. And it's one of those multi-day conferences, and they have breakout sessions and I was is the afternoon and it was like well i don't <laughs> i don't really feel like going to a breakout session i've been to all of these but there was one like it just kind of jumped off the page at me it was aces adverse childhood experiences and I'm like well i've never heard of that never been to that so let me do the responsible thing I will go to a breakout session and this one's one I've never been to so I'm going to this one and long story short it was an hour and a half breakout session but it was i I walked out of that training knowing that um, my life had been changed i couldn't put my finger on how but you just get these feelings something's something's really different and you know at the crux of the training was a um, this gentleman who delivered the training was the assistant district attorney of a town in massachusetts which i can't even remember the name but at that time, they were second in the country in uh opiate overdose deaths. Statistic you don't want to be number two in the country in. But this guy talked about how he had ended up in a training on adverse childhood experiences, which really talks about you know what experiencing adversity challenges in, in early in childhood, what that does to your long-term health and you know future in many ways. And he said he couldn't. Couldn't help but think when he heard this training about all of his officers who were showing up in these houses where a mom or a dad or a caregiver was overdosed and dead in the house, and then on the other side in a corner somewhere are these little kids crying, distraught from what is happening there. And he said, you know, at the time, the process would be somebody would show up, take the kids away, and he would never really know like what happened with these kids. And this training he got really made him start thinking about this in a different way, understanding the impact and what was happening, not just those kids' lives in general, but really in the development, this is the science piece, and the development of their brains and their biology was changing. And if there wasn't some sort of in- intervention to help them deal with that in a healthy way, you know, they were suddenly at really great risk of not just that moment impacting them, but it carrying through, you know, their entire life. So he went back and put some different things in place in his community. I I left that workshop listening to this man. And I went back to my boss and I said, you know, this is a couple of days later, but I told her, you know, this is prevention work we're doing. If we do not include this conversation around adverse childhood experiences, if we don't include that in the prevention work, at the very best, that best case scenario is we're leaving something really critical out. Worst case scenario is we're doing everything all wrong. And I probably lean after four years of being involved in this, probably lean more towards the latter, that we were really doing a lot of stuff wrong by not having this work as the foundation of what we're doing you know, the state level and prevention, and certainly in our local
0: communities. So now that we have set the stage of yeah. adverse childhood experiences, yeah. knowledge being incredible and life changing, and I mean, truly a game changer, yeah. I'm going to challenge you to summarize this huge concept of ACEs for our listeners in just a, in just a few minutes, if, if you're up for the challenge.
1: Yeah, there's people who've heard me talk about aces that are laughing right now. They're saying <laughs> this dude can't describe anything in three minutes. But, you know, really just the science of it is as, you know, Casey, you and I, we came into this world as babies and our brains were like nothing, right? We we came with just enough brain wires to sort of instinctually trigger these things inside us that we needed as babies. We needed our heart to beat. We needed our lungs to breathe. We needed... You know, we needed something to trigger hunger so we could cry out to see if somebody's going to come feed us. But we didn't need a lot of connections to say, you know, what time do I set the alarm clock? What time's dinner tonight? You know, that's just not who we are as babies. We come with these very primitive brains. Our brains develop in response to experiences. So obviously, between the ages of zero and, you know, three years old, um, there's a lot of new experiences happening in a child's life. And that young brain develops in one of two worlds. One world is they instinctually have all these needs. Mom or primary caregiver is showing up to take care of those. So that brain is being wired to anticipate, shoo, life's going to be cool, right? There's always going to be somebody here taking care of me. It's going to be safe. The other world a brain develops in is one that anticipates danger, hostility, chaos, neglect. And so that brain gets wired to anticipate that things are gonna go wrong. It gets wired to anticipate it's time for me to run. It's time for me to fight. It's time for me to hide from these things. The problem in that second scenario is the brain is under a lot of stress. And we our brain is wired in a way when it's stressed to send hormones and chemicals into the body to do certain things to help aid in stress wants the heartbeat to speed up, wants the lungs to breathe a little bit faster, wants to get that immune system engaged in case there's some sort of uh, attack that requires healing. And we're all kind of wired for about 20 minutes of that stress at a time, just enough time for us all to kind of figure out, do I need to fight this thing, hide, run, and then for it all to kind of come back to normal. The problem is if somebody grows up in an environment and especially in those most critical years of their brain developing. Certainly zero to three is when there's just rapid growth. Science would tell us our brain is not fully developed until we're probably in our mid-20s. But certainly the earlier, the more, more dangerous it is to have these chemicals constantly, constantly firing into your body. Number one, it's going to kill off some brain cells that might develop that you'll need when you reach adolescence and adulthood. They're programmed to develop. Then, well, then lo and behold, you get there one day, and they're not there. And somebody say, "Well, what happened?" And it's potentially something happened long ago. And then the other thing is, if your your heart is constantly being triggered to beat, 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 beat right? Eventually, that thing's going to burn out. And so that's that's why folks who experience something really early in life may be at an increased risk already for heart disease down the road. So I don't know if that was three minutes or not, but that's about as close as I can get it, man.
0: We'll count it. (laughs) (laughs) I think what's so profound about uh, utilizing ACEs as a lens is how holistic it is. I mean, you're truly looking at the body, the brain, and the person as one incredible complicated unit, and allowing that to impact work is just, again, a game changer and yeah, hearing you speak about it is is really incredible.
1: Yeah, well, and I say all the time, we all are wired for the same thing. Our bodies, every one of us, you, me, everybody we interact with today, as different as we all are, we're all wired for one thing and that's to stay alive, right? And so we've all got these sort of systems inside the body constantly reading what's going on outside the body and adapting all that in this really complex, but beautiful and sort of miraculous way, that's real time, right? Just constantly processing this information in a way that um, keeps us surviving. And it is, it's, a, it's an amazing sort of machine we all walk around with, which I don't think we often think about the complexity of it. Yeah.
0: we're. We're a lot, we're a lot going on at all times. That's right. So many systems are a go. That's right. <laughs> I think it is helpful when we stop and think about that. And even, I mean, this knowledge is applied to our work and you and I will talk more about how we can apply it in our relationships, but it's really applicable to ourselves too. I mean, how often are you, Are we really taking the time to stop and think when we're experiencing Whatever sort of feeling to say, okay, there's a lot right. happening right now. I've right. got physiological systems going. Right. I'm experiencing the world around me. I mean, I don't do that. I just I just get mad and then I'm like, right. well, I'm mad. Right. No, <laughs> I'm not taking is, into account all the factors.
1: And it's beautifully put. I mean, that's that's exactly that's exactly what it is. And you know, when you understand more about how your body works you do have a lot more control over and emotions are you know a lot of times our biggest enemy right and that's because we're constantly responding to some stresses that maybe trigger us to run when we really don't need to or fight when we don't need to or hide when we don't need to and when you when you learn to no oh, wait a minute <laughs> let's let's pause a minute like you just perfectly said just consider all that's going on you know maybe there's a potential to calm down here and, um, you know, avoid some things that are avoidable.
0: That's a perfect segue into what I want to talk about next, which is the, the difference between reactivity and prevention in the context of ACEs. We love prevention here. I say it in every episode, so sorry to our listeners, (laughs) but we really love it. And I want to hear about how that applies to ACEs.
1: Yeah. So I would say, our, for the most part, our public health model is built on this idea that we do not want people to die. And I always say I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of this idea that we don't want people to die. But the problem with that is that too many times we fail to act until somebody looks like they're about to die. And so I always use this example like heart heart disease, people who die of heart disease. Like if somebody has a heart attack, that's when we're kind of like all in on saving saving their life. But the reality is there are some levels below that heart attack where we have an opportunity to prevent it, right? So there, you know, I always use heart disease as an example. Well, there's a lot of people we know that get heart disease from smoking cigarettes. So we want to we want to prevent heart disease maybe we get better preventing people from smoking cigarettes well somebody who digs too much into the research of smoking cigarettes will discover that a lot of people smoke cigarettes because they're depressed there's a lot of mental health issues that the nicotine is absolutely helpful in, in calming some of the impacts of the mental health challenges people have so now we're like you know people dying of heart disease, we're already down to this level of people suffering from depression. Well, what's led to that? You know, what, where did this depression struggle come from? And that's where we start getting into, well, maybe there was some things that got rewired in their brain along the way. And maybe that rewiring happened in response to things that happened in their childhood. And then, you know, there are so many layers even beneath that. So why did this young person experience this adversity in their childhood? Well, there's a really, really good chance it's because the people raising them experienced adverse childhood experience. There's this there's this transgenerational sort of passing of this adversity. And that's, again, that's scientific as well. Right? Genetically, this adversity we face in our lives can be passed on to a young person in the form of which which what DNA gets read and what doesn't get read from generation to generation. The, the stress we face as adults can actually be passed down. And again, that's a more than a three-minute conversation. But as we as we get down to these layers, we start to see opportunities to intervene and get involved long before we started with somebody who died of a heart attack right now we're all the way down to like my mom and dad and what they experienced in their childhood and once you start to believe that impact and that is aces right suddenly you're you know you should be a little bit motivated to try to help heart attack way way before it happens and you know if your heart doesn't get into that, like, you know, a caring, I just care about these people. I want to prevent that stuff. You have to start looking at this thing from a fiscal standpoint, then. The amount of money we spend on healthcare that could be prevented if we addressed some of the impacts of adverse childhood experiences much, much earlier. Um, just the fiscal piece that that would save us in this country, um, you, you, you can't even begin to, to measure it.
0: Well, and as you're talking about all of that, I'm thinking about how, at surface level, it sounds like it would be easier to just respond to the heart attack. But, and you know, it it sounds complicated. Here, you talk about peeling back all of those layers and going back. It's like, how could we even approach that? But we know that it's possible, and we know that it it is better in the long term if we're addressing it going back and looking at those layers so that we can address it in the future.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, well, it'd be a a much longer (laughs) podcast maybe, but the the problem is, is that, you know, what people need early, early in that sort of preventative place, you know, is they need people getting involved in their lives. And, you know, for whatever reason, too often we're inclined to, well, let, let somebody else, Deal with that. And, and we do that. We pass that on until it's doctors dealing with, with a heart attack. Um, and some of that is that we don't a lot of us don't understand the impact we truly can make on lives early on if we get we get involved.
0: And I think that what you've just said is a difference between the reactivity versus prevention mindset is reactivity it's a small group of specialists really who are who are addressing the problem but if we're taking a preventative approach it's everyone it's a collaborative that's right community approach of professionals and individuals and personal lives which is really to me a lot more beautiful than a small group of specialists
1: right no and i say all the time i had this conversation with a group just a little little while ago um they they ask me and maybe this is the wrong thing to say on your podcast you can edit it out but since we're talking about prevention but you know we've done a lot of work at the state level and changing our narrative and what is prevention and how do we talk about that in communities and we had this brainstorming session a few years ago and you know some of our consultants asked well you know thinking outside the box what what is it that you would change about prevention like if you could just do anything and you know, I thought about it for a little bit. I'm with my whole prevention team, and I, I, I want to say this, but I'm not sure it's a great thing to say here. But I'm going to say it anyway. I said, I think we should get rid of the word prevention. And like everybody, like, what are you? What are you what? saying here? <laughs> but see, to me, prevention is about me and you, Casey, and your community. What do we need to do to prevent this person? Stop this person? from doing this or that um, harmful behavior. It's all very defensive thing. The word I would replace it with is promotion. What do I need to promote in this person's life that will help minimize the risk of some of these things? I'm gonna to wanna to stop down the road because, and that's where your community example comes in, like what what is a community can we do to promote the wellness and that, and that takes substances out of it too. This is like I'm I'm wanting to promote the overall wellness, and if you factor Aces into it, I want to promote the overall wellness in this young person and family's life at the most critical point in their life. Because we we absolutely know if we promote some of the right things at that time, the risk of some of these things we want to prevent down the road um, gets reduced drastically. So, you know, I, I know we talk about prevention on here, but like I'm, you know, a lot of, a lot of the work, I think in communities has to, to evolve to what do we want, you know, what do we want people to stop doing to what is it as a community we want to help promote people to start doing? And what can, what part of that start can I play? Cause a lot of people aren't going to start doing something different unless they have a meaningful relationship or a mm-hmm. meaningful partnership with somebody else. So it's a, it's a, we, it's a weed thing too often. Prevention's a, let me help you mm. stop this thing.
0: Yeah. I can get on board with promotion over at prevention. I like that. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because exactly what you said about prevention can feel defensive um, when it's, it's really the concept of prevention, and and if you're translating that to promotion, is so strengths based. It's let's yeah. let's get the best of our community and the best of what's inside of you, and let's work together and make that what we're focused on and bring that into the future. And absolutely. Well, part of the prevention slash promotion uh, side of this is making sure that young people have as many protective factors as possible. So first, can you define what a protective factor is?
1: Yeah, and it's funny. I was, you know, I was thinking as we were having that conversation, really what we're wanting to promote in young people's lives and people's lives are protective factors. And, you know, risk factor is like, if I have this thing in my life, too much of it, and we talked about ACEs, if if there's too much stress in my life, that becomes very risky. Um, protective factors say that if I have enough loving relationships in my life, I'm going to be protected from a lot of this long-term risk. And if my, my family is employed, or if my family has access to healthcare, those are protective factors against some of this stress that a young person might feel in the most critical points of their life some people's faith communities that's a protective factor um so protective factors i just define if i have enough of these things in my life they're going to just having them in my life is going to reduce whatever impact of these risks that we might we might talk about and there's kind of you know we talk about aces in terms of you know we we you know the original ace study revealed that the more of and they they looked at 10 adversities and they found that the more of these adversities you experience in childhood the the more likely as you if you experience more you're more likely to experience adverse health outcomes down the road well the re- reverse is true as well if you look at protective factors the more of these protective factors you have in your life the less likely it is that you're going to have these adverse health outcomes down the road. And it gets into that whole prevent, right? Am I going to prevent all of these risky things from happening? Or am I going to work as a community to promote all of these protective factors that we know are going to insulate this child and this family from the potential risks that we're talking about here today?
0: And what's exciting to me about protective factors are that they're perpetually relevant. (laughs) They don't, Protective factors aren't just something that matter for young people. They, That's right. They matter always, and the impact of them is long-lasting. So they matter for everyone, but they really matter for youth. We know that. So how do we make sure that youth are supported, and what age group should we be thinking of when we're talking about ACEs?
1: Well, certainly the science, as we talk about that brain development. You know, the most critical phase is that zero to three years old. And again, that's that's just because there is so much happening. Um, by the time a young person goes to elementary school, they have more brain connections than they're ever gonna have because there's another process that starts happening after elementary school where the brain, um, because you know we talked earlier about how complex this whole system is. Well, the brain recognizes that. And so what the brain wants to do is automate as many processes as possible in our life, right? And like walking, you and I are going to walk today we're not not going to walk left foot, right foot. Our brain has automated that whole process and it wants to restore or to, um, it wants to hold as much energy possible for this higher level thinking. So you and I can think about what's my answer going to be on this podcast, you know, all these work things we have to do. All of that to say that a lot of these wires are being formed from zero to three or four years old up to that elementary school. Beyond that, then the brain starts taking a look at all these wires that have developed and saying, you know, this one's a waste of energy, this one's a waste of energy, and it starts plucking them away. So all you're really left with are these wires you use the most. And going back to our earlier conversation, you either have wires that are wired to anticipate life's gonna be okay, or you got all these wires in there that are anticipating something dangerous, chaotic, you know something i need to run or hide from is going to come you, those are the wires you have and so it's really critical in those earliest days of a child's life to get as many of those major life's going to be good i feel safe highways in place because the older you get it's harder to rewire the brain like i'm in an age now like you know, i won't go back to elementary school and and rewire some of those things but it's like for me to develop a new habit or a new wire. I mean, I've got to be ultra focused on one thing hour after hour after hour. Little kids, like they see it, boom, wire. You know, like and you just watch a kid learning to walk and you get that. It's like one step, and then the next thing they're running around the stinking living room. So, so that's earlier, the earlier and, and and that zero to three age is where I say that's that's you know, if I had to pick, if I only had one age group to pour all resources into, that would be it.
0: Which is amazing because I don't think that that's what comes to mind. When we talk about supporting young people, we don't think of the, the people who are so young.
1: <laughs> no, no. And I, I just had a conversation a little bit ago. I You know, I've talked about my progression through prevention. And, you know, that progression was, first, it used to be solely centered on how do we keep people from smoking weed, drinking alcohol, overdosing, all of those sort of specific drug-related things. And then, you know, a lot of my attention would go to these college-age students. Like, these kids are coming here. They're cutting free. They're abusing alcohol, doing drugs, and doing all this stuff in a really risky way. And then I sort of got down the road, and I thought, well, you know what? They're they're picking all this stuff up in high school. There's a lot of stuff happening in high school that they're bringing with them. And then I worked my way back. Like, well, middle school is such a transitional time. There's changes going on, hormones. It's a whole new education system. That's where they're picking up this stuff. And today, today, I'm at new mamas, new babies. That's the, that interaction, that period is, if you want to define like the riskiest, the riskiest, Formation period in a kid's life when it comes to future, not just substance abuse risk now, now ACEs tell, it's not just that. It's mental health disorder, it's risk of suicide, it's unemployment, it's it's days where you just don't feel like doing life, it's heart disease, it's cancer, it's asthma, it's all any health, any health outcome you can think of. Dr. Anda, who trained me on a lot of this said uh, that adverse childhood experience is the greatest predictor of public health outcomes we've ever had and the first time i heard him say that i'm like okay well that's a nice little brandy commercially thing to say i'm already bought into the training i don't need to hear it um now i believe that at least as much as he does like i absolutely believe if we could get to moms babies and do everything we can to make sure that they have the opportunity to build these loving and safe connections that help a brain And a baby wire to anticipate and thrive in those things, um, we'd work miracles on the healthcare system. I mean, it it would be miraculous what would what would happen.
0: And so for a miracle to happen there, I think we need to expand where that support's coming from because we think of zero to three-year-old humans. We think of the support as coming solely from the parents of the families. So how do we shift that into a community based approach?
1: Yeah, I mean that and and Casey, that's a beautiful way to frame that because that is. Like we think of family. We think of those four, five, six people inside that house, right? Well, let's step back then and look inside that house through this through the science. and, if we believe, like I do, and hopefully some listeners now, if we grow to believe that what the science tells us, and what I just told you, that the most critical time in preventing or promoting long-term health, good health, happens between zero and three years old, between a baby and mama and primary caregiver, and, and the best chance of that being a period that promotes long-term health is having as as little stress in that interaction as possible. Now anybody's had a kid knows there's going to be stress and, and not all stress is bad stress. If a baby is stressed and there's somebody there helping them deal with that in a good way, that's what we want, because we want a baby to be able to tolerate more and more stress as they grow, they get conditioned, but they get conditioned by somebody showing up in stress helping them manage it in a healthy way. That cannot happen if the primary caregiver that's going to respond is dealing with their own stress, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we're a community like just peeking outside that house, inside the windows, and we're we're invested, we know this, we believe this. So our goal right now is we're going to make that as stress-free as possible then we have to start asking ourselves, what are the things that might contribute to the stress in there? Well, to me, the big one that always comes to mind, and it's, you know, to me, it's one of the things that puts us on such an uneven playing field, you know, certainly in our communities and across this country is poverty. If I'm a mom who has to worry about whether I'm even gonna be able to feed my kids tonight, that that's a stress that doesn't go away. It ain't like after lunch, it goes away. Because I'm worried about dinner and breakfast the next day. So, poverty is one of those huge issues a community can sit and say, okay, do, do, they, do they have the means to have a stress free environment? And then that has other layers to it. Access to healthcare is usually a, a side product of, of poverty or income. Um, access to a good quality education, right? And, and a lot of our communities the poor are going to poor schools and poor education and they're they're you know missing out on the opportunity to, to work their way out of that poverty um you know some of the things we've dealt with this summer take on a different sort of meaning when you look at you know systemic structural racism over time or any sort of oppression in a community if i'm a mom or a primary caregiver dealing with some of this stuff and worrying about some of this that's gone on in my life through the generations, I'm pretty stressed about the likelihood this is gonna impact this baby I now have or babies. So it it really as a community is, yeah, it's looking inside that house, realizing sort of my community job as a, you know, a loving, caring, invested community member interested in the whole health of the whole community is looking in there and saying okay science tells me and i now know this is a really critical time in that baby and mama's life what what mitigates the chances of this turning really unhealthy is stress so how do we you know reduce some of that stress and that that requires us you know that requires us To be empathetic, it requires us to take a deeper understanding because too many times it's, well, I've overcome stress in my life. They ought to, you know, toughen up and overcome it in their life. It's sort of the easy and wrong way out. And so it requires us to, you know, walk in somebody else's shoes, like truly walk in them. And, you know, I I could get real preachy on all of this one. So uh, (laughs) this. (laughs) <laughs> it's prevention, not preachy, but, you know, I think, I think there is a lot to think about there as, as communities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad that you brought that up because we've talked plenty in this conversation about the scientific component of ACEs, but there's a cultural component there as well that is, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to i am not An expert enough to be judging whether the scientific component is more important than the cultural, but I would say the cultural is as important, if not more important. um, To what this means in our communities and. um, You're just making me think I had a professor in college who all the time would say pie 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 when you're looking at people think of pie and it's person and environment we can't can't look at a person without taking those socio-cultural factors into consideration, and we do a disservice when we're blind to those.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to your, you know, science or culture or, you know, to me, it's, we can be very philosophical, spiritual, cultural about this notion that, you know, a lot of notions where we kind of are our brother's keeper or that, you know, this this whole idea of uh, empathy, right? That that to for community to truly thrive, I have to be at least as interested in Casey's well-being as my own. Now, those are sort of things that are, um, you know, a lot of people would say that's well, that's sort of um, philosophical or spiritual. Or you're getting all culturally, or whatever. You know, the science proves it right? That's, that's the beauty of this. I don't think it is. To me, the bigger part is just sort of how do we interact with one another as humans? And I, you know, there's always been sort of this, whether you, you know, whether it's part of your faith or whether it just makes sense to you, this whole golden rule, you know, treat people like you want to be treated. Well, if you can't buy into that, the science is telling us, right, if we don't treat people, especially early in life, like we would want to be treated early in life. Science tells us the outcomes are not going to be as favorable as they would be if we treat the baby and treat that family and give them the opportunities and the outcomes, at least the opportunity to have them um, as we would want for ourselves. So that's, to me, that's the beauty of this. And it's why I constantly call it, you know, the science of empathy. I've always been a big believer in empathy. I've always think, you know, if empathy was the driving force of the way we navigated life with each other, things would be a lot better off, but that's sort of just Keith speak and Keith philosophy, but no, this is the science that says that, the Mm -hmm. science that proves that, so.
0: We can't really go wrong by adding more empathy into the mix. There's not really a way for that to go south, <laughs> I don't think.
1: Uh, we try, you know, we try to take it, take it out. But I yeah. I um not the answer the answer always comes back to to that. I, you know, again, I say about adverse childhood experiences. There's and you know, when you look at the original study, there's 10 areas of adversity that they looked at. But you know, I say the one thing all 10 of those have in common is they serve to at least really, really damage and in many cases sever the relationship between a baby and the most meaningful person in their life at that time. That's that's really what they all have in common. Well, the solution to that is the same thing. The solution to that is a meaningful relationship with somebody at the right time in your life. You can't get away from, you know, the impact of our interconnectedness, you know? We would we literally, wherever you believe that came from, we were literally wired to be connected with one another. And the better we are connected in a healthy way, the healthier life goes for people scientifically, you know? And the more those connections get broken and relationships aren't healthy, um, we know that's a risky deal.
0: So, we're meant to have these healthy relationships. We have the capacity for them. Then, let me ask you what stops us? What gets in our way? What are the barriers to, to creating and maintaining and investing in those relationships?
1: Well, this will, you know, this will, I'm going to poke at some people out there. And, and before I poke at them, I'll, I'll say I'm poking at me too. Um, we're not good at relationships really and this isn't folks who've suffered adversity this is this is all of us are not really good at adversity and and I'll, I'll i'll talk about me you know early early in my work as a counselor i say the first year that i was a counselor you know i was the world's worst counselor ever like that first year don't you can throw any awful counselor at me they were not worse than i was working with kids that first year and I will say it's because of this. For that first year, I thought what all those troubled kids needed, I thought the answer to all of their troubles was a little more me. I they just needed to hear a little more about my life. They needed to hear a little bit about my story. They need to, they needed to hear a little more how how hard I worked in school, how hard I worked on the athletic field. They needed to hear, boy, what my mom and dad would have done if I'd have done that in your shoe. They needed to hear all about Keith. Every problem they had in their life was a problem because they didn't have enough Keith in their life and so I was going to give it to them. And you know, after a year of that, I discovered most kids had more problems after dealing with me. I got called every name in the book and so did my mom and anybody close to my life like I could take a crisis and make it 10 times worse. Somewhere along the line, though, now that I've raised my hand and confessed to being the world's worst counselor, you know, I gotta tell you, I became a really, really good one. And it's because I figured something out. Those kids didn't need more of me. They needed me to hear more about them. There was this real tangible healing that started once I learned to just let kids start talking about the struggles that they had faced in their life. I remember a kid one day getting you know just just as angry as a kid could get i mean and it turned physical there was all sorts of just ugly stuff happening and then we all got back together and you know i don't know what triggered it to me it was like this divine sort of words got put in my mouth because they weren't words i would have ever said <laughs> somehow they came out of my mouth I, I looked at this kid and i asked him you know what are you so mad about because you can't be this mad at me i've never done anything to you in your life for you to be this mad at me. And you know, he didn't he didn't respond to that right away, he cussed a little more and fussed and just threatened, and you know what, what those kids did. And he kind of calmed down. He looked at me and he said, Do you really, do you really want to know why I'm so mad? And I kind of calmly, because I look, he's like, serious, there's a new look in this kid's eye. And I said, Yeah, I really want to know. And it, that boy took a finger and he pointed it right at me. And he said, you, you have no idea what it's like to grow up without a dad. And I was like, you know, I just stood there. I had no idea what to say. Number one, because he was right. I didn't, didn't have a clue, right? I grew up and dad was always there. I had grandfathers great, I had no idea what that was like and you know the thing when I said that to that kid you're right I don't tell me tell me about it and so then it wasn't even as much that dad wasn't there I mean it was it was watching a mom who had to run the family all on her own it was about him you know 13 years old having to be 18 years old trying to take care I learned that day. I didn't know it. I look back now, and it makes more sense to me. I look, I look back then and knew that—that that was the key to building a meaningful relationship. You don't need more of me. I want to know more about you. And you know, we've got social media. We've got a lot of platforms now that encourage us to tell all about us, right? We got a lot of avenues where and that invite us to like give my opinion right? Give my advice. And what we know, again, from adverse childhood experiences, and I just think from a humanity standpoint, and I'm an adult now, and I think most adults listening know when we get stressed, or when we get sad, or when we get upset, the thing we want most is just somebody who'll listen to it, right? And not somebody to fix it, just somebody who's going to listen. So like this thing I'm feeling, you know, this was a kid for 13 years, this anger he had, he, he he thought it was fake. Everybody had always convinced him that he shouldn't be mad, that he had no reason to be mad, that he should just get over it, that he should just suck it up. I was the first person in this kid's life. And like I said, I don't even take credit for it. I don't even know why, but I I was the first person who said, tell me about it. And that suddenly made it real. We don't have enough people walking around in this world saying, Casey, tell me about it, right? And when people start to tell us about it, we want to cut them off and say, oh, I can fix that for you, Casey. You don't have to go any further. I got this one. Um, And that's hard. You know, people out there are in marriages that are saying, oh yeah, man, <laughs> that's a hard deal. We, it's hard with our kids, right? We're raising kids and we're, we, we want to just jump in, say stop, knock it off, put things back together. Those kids just need to tell you what's broken, what needs to be put back together. So that's, clearly that's a big one to me, but to me it's the answer. You know, that's, that is so much of the problem and solution we have for a lot of challenges in our lives. So, relationships, we're not very good at them. You know, that's if, if and that's an area. And, the, but the beautiful thing is, you know, I tell people, this is an easy one to fix. Just shut up, right? That's all we got to do. We just got to shut up a little bit. When we walk by somebody in the hallway at work and say, Hey, how was your night? Like, at least stop to listen for the answer. You know, we go by, you know, good morning, how was your night? And before even anybody thinks, we're settled down turning our computer on. We got to stop these superficial conversations, these superficial interactions and start getting real. And, you know, people get scared by the word, but vulnerable, you know, with with one another, Uh, because those are the stories we most want somebody To hear, and that the stories we're spending all of our time covering up, and because we don't feel like we can share them, they stay in here. They produce stress. We pass that stress on to other people in our life, and we got a stressed out world that isn't very good at relationships. (laughs) That's there. You go. So that's it. I I didn't easy
0: peasy. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I didn't keep that one under three minutes. I know that.
0: But Keith, that's everything that you just said is so important and I have 1 million thoughts pinging around in my head. But the first is that I, what I hear often, people identifying as a barrier to building meaningful relationships with people who have had different lives than them is how can I understand where they're coming from? I don't have any of the same experiences, you know, thoughts and fears along those lines. Well, yeah, if I show up and it's the Casey show and I'm only sharing my own stuff, I'm only projecting my own stuff. Of course, I can't relate. <laughs> of course, right. because I'm I'm just putting more of me out there. Um, and so it, it just makes a lot of sense that in order to connect with a life experience that's different than ours, that we don't know anything about, we have to pause and we have to listen. Yeah. And I think with that, there's patience that's needed. You mentioned social media, and I was thinking about, I kind of roll my eyes when people say this, because you hear it so often, but it's true that we live in this fast paced world, where everything's instant. And I think sometimes we expect our relationships to be that way. But there, what good relationship has been fully formed in minutes, I can think of none. Um, And I think sometimes we don't, we don't give it time to build up to that vulnerability. We don't give it time for the the expressions of care to come out. You know, we we give it a, a little chance and then we say, well, I don't know. It didn't really turn into anything. I'm, I'm moving on. Right.
1: No, and I think you're right. I say it all the time. We are a snapshot society. So I'm sitting here looking at Casey. You got on this nice purple shirt that I talked about. And so, I mean, it's easier for me to just make a judgment about who you are, what you are, what you do, like right now. And 100% of the time, I'm going to be wrong about that because there's a deeper story to you. Now, I can get some impressions and I can, but we want to take the fast the fast way. And the fast way is just to kind of have a brief sort of snapshot judgment or interaction um, and and that's not worked out for us. You know, we watch our news with the same lens, right? We see these characters on the news and all this going wrong in the world and man, we just fire off our our judgments and thinking about that without any sort of deeper thought about what are the stories in these people's people's lives. Now, you know, we don't we don't have the time clearly to do that with everybody in our life. But man, we got to have some of them. We're gonna have some of those relationships in our life. And, you know, I would say the younger we are, especially with our kids, they surely need to be surrounded by those relationships in their life.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, we can't, as you just said, those deeply meaningful relationships, we're not meant to have those with every single person, but we're meant to have meaningful connections with the people around us, which is why I'm really glad that you mentioned earlier. Building those connections with coworkers, I mean, like, I mean, a coworker, someone you spend forty hours a week That's with, right. and That's right. and uh, you know, how many of us there, we have coworkers that we don't know that much about because right. we don't stop and ask. We don't well, right. we really don't stop and listen once we ask. Right. Right. Um, and I think right. you know, hearing you talk about this, I'm thinking of the importance of this in our homes, but in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities. So, I mean, can you speak a little bit to that on this broader scale?
1: Um, well, I mean, to me, it's just, it it is just taking relationships to this, to this broader scale. If we're, you know, if we're, if we're ever going to, um, help people understand the importance of relationships, some of us have to start taking the lead and, in in informing those, right? Um, you know, the workplace is a great environment, you know, how, how do we all work best together if we don't even Know one another, you know, too many times we look at like sports teams is a good example and you know these guys spend a whole season to get they get to know one another, I forget what coach it was I thought man, this is this was just beautiful. Um, Was on one of these pregame football stories not not long ago, it was a new coach and he would taken over one of these teams and they did well I wish I could remember which team it was but very first day. Very first day of practice when he pulled this whole team together. You got 70, 80 guys in there. He started the practice by saying, I want every one of you to tell me the hardest thing you've ever been through. And so each each guy. And and you know, to hear it, just the stories that came out of that. And this went on for hours, right? And well, what a perfect thing. Like, how many of us are how many of us are willing to do that? Like, how many of us are willing to say, Casey, I want you to tell me the hardest thing that ever happened to you. And there's two common reasons why I would not do that and why we don't do it with one another. And I don't know which one's the most common and that's clearly my opinion. But one of those reasons is, well, if I ask her that, this, this could take like an hour. Like if she starts telling me about the hardest thing in her life, this could end up being a long conversation and I gotta go run or I gotta go, you know, do this or that. I gotta go get Netflix on. I don't want to sit here an hour. The other thing is, well, this could be scary. Like if I'm asking somebody the hardest thing they've ever been through, they could like bring up some stuff that may be hard to hear. And I I would just say two things to both of those. Number one, maybe it's just me, but I'm I'm not sure whether there's a better place to invest our time than in one another. And I, like I said, I go back, I have, you know, I worked for 13 years. The number of kids who reach out to me today, and that is the beautiful thing about social media, and say, you saved my life. And I'm like, well, you know, that's kind of over the top. Like, but I, you know, I joke all the time. Well, tell me like what I did to save your life because I'm going to write a book like how to save people's lives. I mean, I'll make millions. But all of those kids, they all answer it in different ways, but it's always one answer. You were there. No matter how hard things were, you were there. And I'm like, well, did I say something brilliant? Did I? It's like, no, you were just there. And so that's the other thing, you know, I think the other thing is when we feel this pressure of, oh my God, Casey's going to unload this big thing and I won't know what to do about it or how to help her, you already have. Casey don't want you to fix it. Casey just wants you to hear it. And we we put so much pressure on ourselves. Like we have to have the answer to everything. Well, number one, get over yourself because you don't have many good answers. So you're just throwing stuff out there. I mean, that's, I learned that with these kids. Like I thought I was brilliant. Like, no, I didn't have one answer that worked for them until, until they knew I was interested in what they had to say. Then I was suddenly brilliant. Then everything I said made sense because they knew I cared about them. They knew that what they had to say was more important than me. So culturally, whether it's in, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in, you know, too many families, I mean, not too many families in a living room um, don't have this environment. Um, And I don't know how, you know, I don't know how other than one connection at a time, I don't know how we fix that. Um, I just know it starts with, it starts with more quiet, right? More, more listening. Um, I made my boys sit through a, a online church service a couple Sundays and go, and the whole thing was, and I keep repeating it to them just to mess with them, like they were bored through the whole thing. But the whole scripture was about you know, slow to slow to speak, quick to listen. So it's all mess with them now. It's like, hey, are you being are you being slow to speak? You know, are you being quick to listen? But it's true, you know. So science, scripture, whatever, none of. It works wherever wherever you are. Like I said, with those young kids, I wasn't quoting scripture and I wasn't speaking science. I listened and watched lives change. And the science is they to this day will call and say, You saved my life. And the only thing I did was <laughs> shut up and listen when they were having a really hard time.
0: And a a piece of that that you touched on is removing this idea that we that there's a list of qualifications that we have to have to ask questions and to listen. We're so wrong when we think, well, I'm not gonna have the perfect response, so I can't ask, or I'm not that social of a person, so these relationships aren't for me. This is for introverts, this is for extroverts, <laughs> this is for, right. for every human to be working on. And I, it just, it makes me sad to think about people not having the kind of connections they could have because they think that they don't have what it takes. I feel like we do inherently have what it takes and we can build upon that to make our ability to build relationships even better.
1: Yeah, and we've, we're talking about adverse childhood experiences here, but you know, there's a book that came out recently Vivek um, Murthy. Um, he was the Surgeon General in the Obama administration. And so this is a guy, he was our Surgeon General. This is a guy who has studied a lot of pandemics, a lot of public health issues. He wrote this book to say the greatest health, the greatest health um, risk we have right now is loneliness, right? And so he wrote a whole book on loneliness. A lot of research in it, but it all boils down to this: what we just what we just talked about people are suffering from loneliness, not because there are a lot of lonely people out there that have, you know, I read this book and I went on Facebook and I'm like, you know, I got two, I got 2,000 friends, but like, I don't know which one of them, like, if I had this really hard thing going on, like, which of those 2,000 is it? You know, that's problematic. And, and so this idea that And it skews our thinking. We see all these people have all these connections and have a hard time believing, well, surely they can't be lonely. Well, lonely isn't a quantity thing. Lonely is a quality connection thing. And that's what we're talking about. Quality connection is who is it that's going to come and just sit and listen, right? Come sit and listen without Feeling overwhelmed by obligation or overwhelmed by fix it. So again, the science the science supports all this as well. When we start talking about we're bad at relationships, our connections aren't strong. Well, here's the Surgeon General of the United States who spent three years researching and says the greatest you know health epidemic that we have going on right now is loneliness, and it's it's only magnified right now in a time where we are you know, kept from one another where we have a hard time doing this and being in each other's lives in a meaningful way. So we got to be creative on how you, how you do that. We might have to do something crazy, like get on the phone and talk to one another or, you know, Zoom and do these things. So
0: that's my my relationship.
1: That's my relationship sermon, Casey.
0: Well, I appreciate it. And here is my optimistic take my brief. Yeah. Yeah not a sermon, just a thought on uh, the idea that we have a loneliness epidemic is, okay, so we all want meaningful connections. We all want relationships. So when I feel scared or intimidated by the vulnerability that making that connection requires, I can remember this other person wants this because we're made for this. So I just, to anyone listening and to Keith and to myself, let that be a reminder that yes. these relationships are worth pursuing and it's, we're made for it. I don't know right. I have any other way to say it than that.
1: Yeah, no. And that's perfect. I mean, that's a, that's a really, really beautiful reminder that, because that is, that is why we hesitate. You know, it's like, am I, am I being weak? Well, only as weak as the person you're about to talk to. Cause we are all, all craving that same thing. It's whether, you know, we're either lying about it or we're craving it, you know?
0: Yeah. And we have this unique time in history to be creative about it. And to, I mean, if there's ever a time to put yourself out there and try to make a connection, I feel like it's right now because we all need it more than we ever have.
1: Absolutely.
0: This has just been Incredible, Keith. I'm so grateful that you're here and having this conversation with me and and for all of our people listening. If someone's listening and they're feeling fired up and ready to get engaged with the work of ACEs or with the idea of building relationships within a community, what resources would you recommend for continuing to build on that awareness. Do you have some learning resources that have helped you in your path and might help someone else?
1: Well, there's there's a couple of um, learning resources. Anybody who wants to know more about ACEs, I would highly recommend you listening to the Nadine Burke Harris TED Talk. I forget. I wrote the name of it down. Um, How childhood trauma affects health across the lifetime. When I went to look up, because I I watched this TED Talk years ago and I was like, holy moly, it was shortly after I had my experience. And I think it's been viewed like 8 million times. So I would go look up Nadine Burke Harris, Childhood Trauma. There's another book I read, Lost Connections, and it's by Johan Hari, J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I. And it really sort of marries this idea of adverse childhood experiences with this conversation you and I just spent some really good time on in terms of relationships. It once again gets heavy, heavy science into the importance of those connections. Those, those are, I mean, I've there are tons of books out there. If you you know, if you Google "aces adverse childhood experiences," you're you'll get reading material and viewing material forever. Um, I would start with those with those two, and then in terms of you know. Getting involved, you know, a lot of our communities have started to develop what we call these trauma-informed community networks. And, you know, what these networks really get together and they talk about these different areas that I work in in my sector of the community. How do I do things differently through this lens of what we've talked about on this podcast? And those are really, really powerful coalitions. Because one of the things that, you know, I'll go out and do a presentation, have this conversation and people say, oh, you know, the light bulb will go on, there'll be this awakening and then they'll be, tell me what to do next. And tell you what to do next is different, like for what a school should do, what a church should do, what a department of social service should do. So what it requires is a group of people to get together who are passionate about this and put that lens on that we've kind of given them today and take a look at their community and say, what are some things we're doing that really don't factor in this idea that people need relationships, that don't factor in the reality that people have experienced some really hard times that may be leading to some of this struggle. So that's that would be a starting a starting place for me. And on a personal level, you know, I I tell every presentation I do, I say, I got one outcome I'm hoping for out of this conversation. If you don't learn a thing, if you, you don't know the parts of the brain, if you don't buy into relationships, I just ask people to just even just for one interaction. Like when you get done with listening to this podcast, the next challenging interaction you have with anybody that frustrates you, makes you mad, or what, or you're like, this person's an idiot talking like this. Whatever it is, I've been there like twice already today. Just, just stop. Just stop for a minute, pause, even just five seconds, and take that time and wonder, has this person experienced something in their life? that may be the foundation of, or at least contributing to this thing they're doing right now, this thing that they're saying, this thing that they're making me feel uncomfortable with, that they experience something that maybe is influencing this more than me, right? Maybe this isn't personal. And I think if you just incorporate that exercise, and I kind of do it with I try to do it with everybody now. I mean, I walk around like Oh, I wonder what his story is, I wonder what her story is. I wonder what and you know the beautiful thing is if you when you start collecting these stories of people, one, you learn you you learn a lot. Like I learned a lot from from those kids, and I'm fascinated by people's stories today. So one one, you get smarter and it's fun being smarter. Two. You suddenly don't have the relationship strains that you once had in your life, and you you come to realize, oh wait a minute, a lot of the relationship struggles weren't a them thing; it's been a me thing. And those are really powerful, powerful things to to come to, and they really can come from just starting with just stopping just for a few seconds in a in a conversation, and just wondering. And I'll the science will tell you that there's a really good chance they've been through something really, really hard. For me, I've discovered just the wandering piece starts to build some feelings of empathy. And you You don't even have to know what it is to start being a little more empathetic. And like you and, you know, you said, and I think we've agreed that empathy would be a nice kind of common, cool thread for us all. If we had no other common thread in our, our lives, maybe empathy would be a great a great one because, you know, empathy says, we're all just fighting to, to know what's happened to each other and not fighting to tell you what's happened to me and, you know, all the things I need you to do and be different, so.
0: Well, my challenge that I will tack on to Keith's challenge uh, is to apply some of these same pauses and moments of reflection to ourselves. And I know we've spent time talking about the importance of looking outward, but also if you're experiencing a moment of frustration with yourself in your day, or you, you know, you messed something up for the sixth time today, it might be worth taking a second to say, hmm, why did I feel frazzled? Why did that mistake happen? Perhaps it's Mm -hmm. because- I'm living through a global pandemic. (laughs) I've never done that before. And I'm trying to care for my family and work a job and maintain relationships. So as much as it applies to other people, we're also worth that pause and consideration. I don't know if we are reminded of that enough.
1: No, and I'm I'm glad you said it. We're always going to have a really hard time offering grace to somebody else if we can't give it to ourselves. So I'm, I'm glad that you added that in there.
0: So that's the Keith and Casey challenge to all who are listening.
1: Go <laughs> be, be a lot of people out there pausing.
0: A lot of pauses. That's all we're asking for. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, Keith. So we have come to the end of our time and I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests which is, what does the process of awareness to action mean to you?
1: Whew. Um, you know, I read, you know, you, you shared that question with me, and I kind of got, you know, a little emotional. I do now thinking about it because, again, I go back to, I walked out of that training knowing that I had heard something that changed my life. And I walked out of there really overwhelmed by the reality of just the kind of hardship people have faced in their lives and the impact that it's having on them and you know it's an awareness you have to act on when it's all you start thinking about when you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it like i got friends i say keith do you ever talk about anything other than people's stories and what happened to them Miss Babies. And the answer is probably not much, you know? Um, But I think it's a beautiful thing when we have, we become aware of something and it moves us so much that we, we can't be us if we're not doing something about it. And so not everybody will hear this podcast and that won't be you, but, and this is sort of off topic a little bit, but I just, I just encourage you, you know, if, If something, if you become aware of anything today, tomorrow, and it just stirs in you, man, go do something about it. Because, like, I get goosebumps sitting here right now thinking, like, I heard that I was in that conference, you know, four years ago, and now I'm sitting here talking to you, right? I mean, that's like, that floors me in a way because it wouldn't have happened. Like, if I hadn't, become aware of something that I refuse not to act on. And that would have been the consequence. This conversation you and I are having, this Casey and Keith challenge for people like, you know, sometimes we don't take enough time to sort of back up and see where that came from. And where it came from was awareness to an action. And that's not I'm not the only one capable of that. And you're not the only one capable of saying, you know, I think a podcast has helped. We're going to do one. A lot of people in our communities have the capacity to be aware of things, to look in that family's house and say, okay, now I'm aware of this. What can I contribute to giving them a chance? Um, So I think that's a it's certainly one of the more beautiful questions I've ever been asked doing some of these interviews and pod, podcasts. And um, and I hope people will take it, take it to heart because it isn't all, it's an us thing, you know, so.
0: Beautifully said. I'm thinking that that should just be the advertisement for this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> Awareness Action. That was um, a really amazing summary. So thank you for that, Keith. Um, And thank you for being here, for sharing your experiences and your heart with us. I have so enjoyed this conversation. And uh, hopefully our listeners are feeling the same way right now.
1: Yeah, me too. Um, I've been fired up since we first talked about doing it. I I will, I say yes to anything ACES. I keep telling (laughs) that because I truly, I truly believe it's like, you know, when you, when you become aware of something you believe is you know, at least an answer, if not the answer to a lot of things, um, you get excited and then meeting you and kind of how fired up you are about doing this sort of stuff. It's like, okay, this is going to be a really cool thing to do. And I was right.
0: Well, thanks for being here. We were happy to have you on the podcast.
1: All right, Casey. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. We've linked the resources that Keith mentioned in the episode description for those of you who are eager to learn more. We've also linked registration for upcoming ACES trainings in our area. If you're interested in impacting your community through an ACES lens, these virtual trainings are for you. As always, make sure to subscribe to Awareness to Action so you can keep up to date with all of our future episodes. We'll see you next time.